We cannot fight the Tories if we're fighting each other. Factualism has to go. It has to go. The question should not be which side are you on. It should be what are you saying? A new decade has dawned, has it not? But following their most devastating election defeat in 80 years, what new dawn awaits the British Labour Party? If there's one thing the Corbyn years will be remembered for, it's the rampant ideological infighting between the left and the right of the party, momentum versus the Blairite, somewheres and anywheres, leavers, remainers. But now, with the leadership contest in full swing and a new successor to be named on the 4th of April, Will the party seize the opportunity to elect a leader who can heal the deep divides within the party and end the civil war? And maybe one day win an election as well? What I do think has to change and what we have to do differently is actually have a leader who is capable of going out into the country and showing communities like mine that we have skin in the game. When we have a Prime Minister like Boris Johnson who can bluster and lie his way to the top, we need somebody who will truly speak truth to power. Welcome back to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the big divides in our politics and culture and how to mend them. I'm Ian Leslie. And I'm Matthew Taylor. This week we're asking, who can fix the problem of polarisation within the British Labour Party. I come from a long line of tough old birds and there have been lots of tough old birds in the Labour Party. It would be great for there to be one who becomes leader of the Labour Party. I thought Jeremy was one of the most honest, kind, principled politicians that I ever met. 10 out of 10? Well, I'd give him 10 out of 10. I'll tell you who I'll be voting for. No, I won't be telling you who I'm going to be voting for. And who better to ask than Aisha Hazarika, a former advisor to Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband, and now a stand-up comedian and broadcaster and newspaper columnist and probably several other things that I don't know about yet. And uh, second guest, Chris Clark, another former Labour Party insider who's just published a book called Warring Fictions, a critique of Corbynism which lays the blame for Labour's woes at the door of Dark Knights, Puppet Masters and Golden Eras. Uh, you'll see what we're talking about a bit later. So are we witnessing Labour, the end game, or will the party rise from the ashes in the 2020s? Before we hear from Aisha and Chris, it's time for our full disclosure segment. Uh, Matthew, what would you like to disclose? Yeah, so the idea of full disclosure is that we kind of put our cards on the table, and so let me let me do that. I've written a blog post which will be up by the time you're listening to this. It argues that Although the leadership election campaign will be around all sorts of things, personality, background, who's got the most working class roots, goodness knows what else. I think, in essence, it's about this. Is the Labour Party ultimately there to make liberal democracy work? So is the Labour Party's argument that you need progressive politics to make the liberal democratic system work? Or is the Labour Party there to create something called socialism? Now, you won't hear that debated because... Okay, so, so are you basically trying to make the existing system a little bit better or are you trying to transform the system? Is that No, you see, I think the phrase a little bit better is loaded there. I, I think you have to work very hard to make liberal democracy work. So I think on the one hand, the liberal democratic system is the best system for improving people's lives the world has ever known. But I think it has really quite deep flaws and its particular flaw is the way in which individualism, markets 
tend to overwhelm the system. It tends to become too market-oriented and to lose balance, uh, as it were. And that's what I think we've seen with the kind of neoliberal era. So I think progressivism has to be rigorous and robust. But ultimately, it's about making liberal democracy work. It's not about creating something called socialism. And the reason I think it's important to say that is... You're not I, running for Labour Party leader, right? No, and if I, I was, I cert- no, if I was, I certainly <laughs> would not say what I've just said, because yeah. I think given where the Labour Party is, it would be death. But I think that's actually what this campaign is about. And I suspect that one of our guests, Chris, might agree. Yes, I do think you're right to a point in that the kind of core substance, I think, is between essentially kind of regulated capitalism and something different. I mean, it could be very well-regulated capitalism and it could almost have the same consequences, but I think ultimately that's the the real difference in terms of substance. But I I personally feel that there's a, a wider, bigger clash within the party, which is basically between two worldviews, which, you know, I call the, the populist, the left populist worldview and the left pluralist worldview. Essentially, I think that the substance of the dispute, although real, is massively magnified by these completely different. So, what are, those, what are those two? That, what, populism versus pluralism. What, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so I, I see it as that there's three myths define left populism, uh, and I call them the Dark Knight, the Puppet Master, and the Golden Era. Sounds like a Marvel franchise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did. I did. So let's let's do them one by one. Yeah, so, do, okay. We're doing so, one by one. And the so Dark, Dark Knight, Knight. I should say the Dark Knight is spelt with a K. Sounds kind of hot. Not day. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, did, like. <laughs> I did say it to someone, and they were like, "You mean Batman?" And I was like, no. I, "Well, the Dark Knight's got Aisha's vote already." <laughs> so the Dark Knight is the idea of the immoral political other. Basically, politics is always breaks down to struggle of good versus ah, yeah. evil. So, if people disagree with you, it's not because they disagree with you; it's because they're bad, yes. or they're under yes. the influence of the bad. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, it says that essentially the political spectrum is a moral spectrum, and that the left is where virtue lies, and that the further right, right. to the right, quote right, you go, the more sort of selfish or spiteful you get and it kind of frames politics in those terms and then it breaks everything within politics every policy issue every debate into a kind of white knight and dark knight so whether it's palestine and israel or nationalization and privatization or okay, um, a white whatever it might be knight, it's, it's a sort of us so against that, them so good that, against evil so that's evil. inherently polarizing because yeah I can have a conversation with you where I disagree with you and then that can be quite civilised and whatever. But if I have a conversation in which I say the reason you disagree with me, Chris, is because you're basically evil or in the hands of evil people, there isn't really a great deal of common ground to be opened up there. So, Aisha, now, we want you to judge these three myths. There's two questions to ask. First of all, do you, as someone who's spent a lot of time in the kind of Labour Party and the culture of the Labour Party and the, the peculiarities of the Labour Party's kind of internal conversation, first of all, do you recognise Chris's myth? And secondly, do you think it's a myth? So I think the this whole business of kind of purity and good and evil has actually been quite a recent arrival in the Labour Party. So the Labour Party that I knew and worked with from 1997 up until 2015 when I left as an advisor, I was a civil servant first, then I was an advisor, I think there was an idea that people could have very different views from you, but they weren't inherently bad people. You just disagreed fundamentally on things. 
And that was true on policy issues. It was also true on sort of cultural issues as well. And if somebody disagreed with you, they, I think the sort of view wasn't that they were like a, a malign, diseased-minded person. They were just a bit daft. You almost sort of brushed them off with a sense of affection. You know, they were from a different part of the party. They were like your kind of, I suppose, your friendly nutter, if you like. Um, I know that language is probably going to get me into trouble, but, you know, <laughs> it was that It was that kind of thing. Then... 2015 happened and everything shifted. As soon as actually we lost the election in 2010 and Corbyn started gaining momentum, pardon the pun, during that, that election contest, suddenly you're starting to see this polarisation coming in. Suddenly you're not just a bit daft, you're not somebody that has a different point of view. Suddenly you are fundamentally a terrible human being that doesn't deserve the skin you're in. That has been the, the fault line that has defined Labour politics since 2015. I have been astonished at the speed at which it's happened and how embedded. So I think that myth is real and it has become real, particularly over the last four years. So I, I want to question on, on two grounds, the idea that it's a kind of Corbyn phenomenon. I think the Labour Party has always hummed that along to that tune. I've been to a lot of party conferences, thankfully not for a few years. Everybody, including centrists, who in the end want to be popular in the party... The kind of idea that the reason that the Tories do what the Tories do is because they are evil people who really hate and want to crush the poor is one that a lot of people across the party have pandered to. So first of all, I want to say, actually, what Corbynism is, is it distills something which is in the party already, which is a kind of moral self-righteousness. And then secondly, that also... Can I just come back to you on that one first? I think that is true of anything in society. It's like basically saying there's always been a bit of racism around. You can't ever get rid of it. But when it, it's now come to the fore. When, so I think you're right, there's always been a bit of that, but our political leaders didn't go that far. Well, I think we've always been prone to, though. You know what? I, you know, it's a bit like, I tell you what, it's a bit like football. I'm going to say something that's really going to annoy people now, but it's a bit like Liverpool football fans. Every football team fan thinks they're the best team and they love their team. But there's something about Liverpool fans where they feel they are morally superior to all other... And that when they win the title, it will be a moment of moral uplift, not just a team winning. Matthew, and I think the I, Labour Party had too has really that... I'm really going to push back against that. <laughs> Having like written speeches, prepared people for PMQs for like a long, long time, for the like, best part of 10 years. The politicians I worked for, if anything, reined us back. If anything, probably advisors like me were more guilty of that, partly because I was trying to get a headline or a, a, la a cheap laugh at someone's expense, a joke at PMQs. People certainly, you know, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, Harriet Harman, you know, all the, the top politicians I worked for for that period of time would always say, do you know what, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. If anything, we used to... When I prepared Ed Miliband for PMQs, you will know Bruce Grocott. He was always telling Ed to, like, really put the boot into David Cameron, be much more personal about his background, his family, his kid, all that kind of stuff. And, and Ed would not have any of it. He always said, there's a line that we just shouldn't cross. We as political leaders, we shouldn't cross. And I feel that that is the thing that has changed. And that sends and, and a signal the, to the rest of the the, the... the second dimension, which I'm sure you'll touch on, is it's become internalised as well. In fact, the internal division is as morally sharp and, and as bitter, and even more so than the division versus the Tories. Yeah, OK. I, I'm, I'm, look, I, I'm going to give ground on that, although... Well, could have got time to go on about it. I would say even the Blair Brown. That was against each other. I know, but there was a moral dimension. The, the Brownites portrayed the Blairites not just as being people of a slightly different political perspective, but being basically, you know, evil people. But anyway, I accept what you say. It's very powerful. I agree. So, but the second thing I was going to say was that this 
Dark Knight thing also has some elements of the kind of identity politics as well, which, so that's beyond the Labour Party, that broader social polarisation that has taken place. So do you think that's part of it as well? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, I think particularly in the last few years, in the run, I would actually say since, since the Scottish referendum, that I think is the the starting point of this huge polarisation that we're seeing. So yeah, I would argue that a lot of those, the kind of culture war has definitely bled into how we do our politics not just within the Labour Party, but across society. And then, of course, we've had the most divisive period of time because of of Brexit, which, of course, has polarised people. But I do think that the speed at which the Labour Party went down this track of attacking people expedited that kind of souring of British politics and public discourse. Uh, With the Dark Knight, I do think you're completely right, Aisha, and I don't think... Um, but I think does that mean I'm wrong? Uh, no, it doesn't mean, oh, doesn't yes, mean it you're does, wrong. I think, you know, it, <laughs> I think it does. Just, uh, Chris is searching for a third I way think, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something in the middle there. No, I think um, I think that if you look at, say, a song like the, the Red Flag, this sort of grassroots version of Labour, very much based on struggle and a struggle against something, say, you know, traitors snare and cowards flinch or whatever it is. And I think it's there and it's, it's latent. Maybe was a dog whistle that very occasionally, you know, somebody on the centre of the party might blow during a leadership contest or something. And the election of Corbyn is just an absolute explosion of those myths into the public domain and there into was the even political a Blair, realm. There's even a Blair moment around this, actually, which is his Forces of Conservatism speech, which yeah. was quite controversial at the time because he... Yeah, well, exactly. Do you remember how controversial that was? Because he, and, it looked imagine, like he was playing that game and, and of, now, of portraying anything that was bad in society. It sounds very mild now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. OK, second so, myth. Second myth is the puppet master and that's the idea that we live in a essentially a thinly disguised dictatorship rather than a roughly functioning democracy so it sees everything in society as all the problems in society as kind of authored and shaped from above to a greater or lesser degree i guess it's the kind of thin end of the conspiracy theorist wedge but it's much more than just conspiracy theories it's a it's all the language about agendas interests propaganda the the deep state, manufactured consent, all this stuff about BBC bias, the mainstream media. It's an entire view that ultimately society is controlled from above and that a problem like inequality is the consequence of, you know, powerful an, individuals. An evil having made, elite. Yeah, an evil elite. So all, the thing, all, those, all those films that you've seen from the Manchurian candidate on, they're all true. That belief is, I think, an integral part of the rise of Corbyn is it's playing into that. And the, one of the consequences of that is it assumes, quite aside from all the conspiracy theories and the anti-Semitism and things like that, it assumes politics is is quite easy and it's, you know, a case of walking into number 10 and turning the poverty button off and switching the inequality dial down to zero. And because it thinks there's this power at the top, it never really gets Yeah, you just get rid of those people yeah. and, and exactly. you know, yeah, everything's going to be fine. Well, Aisha, what do you think? Does that ring so, a bell? So, I mean, that definitely rings a bell because it pervades so much of the political discourse. Now, I, th- I suppose there's, there's a spectrum and where Corbynism takes you is to that myth on speed, basically. That myth has bled into the anti-Semitism thing very, very powerfully in terms of oh, who controls everything and that's where the, all those terrible tropes um, end up with as well. M- Matthew's first point to me beforehand, I probably have, would apply that here. I think there has always been 
quite a bit of that argument on the left that we think newspapers are too biased one way. We think that that is a huge part of the Labour Party. When we were doing the Leveson inquiry, there was a whole thing about if you look at the market share of British newspapers, there is a bias towards the right. Does that mean that everybody is controlled by these press barons, etc., etc.? We've always had a narrative which is actually, you know, are the you know bosses against workers and all that kind of thing. You know, we've seen it in the language that politicians have used. You know, this is an economy that doesn't work for working people. The kind of inference is that, you know, there's there's people at the top. So there's all these kind of trigger words that get to that. So I think that's been quite a bread and butter staple of left and politics. But I do think, again, it has been sort of ramped up to the point now where it's not really a meaningful debate about it. It's like a trope. So on business, I think it'll be very interesting to hear any leadership contest uh, say... Actually, is business a force for good in this country? Will anybody concede that actually, as you've brilliantly said, you can't just press the inequality dial down and all this. You actually need to have partnerships with businesses and all that kind of thing. We've got to the situation now where this stuff is so toxic. It's almost like you have to burnish your credentials by saying, like, all business is bad. Like, everybody in the media is terrible. Every media outlet is awful. There is an argument. There is undue influence from from malign forces and the system is rigged against people. That is not an ignoble, false thing to to see, but we have just gone, I think, to sort of a cartoon extremity on it. I mean, if you did want a cartoon character to represent the idea that there is somebody running everything who is a kind of evil genius, then Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings are kind of, they're not, they're not bad, are they, as evil superheroes? Yeah, I mean, Dominic Cummings is the kind of guy behind, you know, pulling the strings. He certainly looks the part and fits the bill in that that respect. So, I mean, Aisha's right in a sense that in this leadership campaign, A, you've got that tendency of the left to kind of like this idea that there's a kind of puppet master pulling the strings, but also you actually got a couple of characters in Johnson and Cummings that if you wanted to kind of use that rather tired trope, they're slightly more credible uh, in those roles. The, the, the other thing I'd say is that that sort of left-wing or, or, or Corbynite critique of Blairism, centrism, they get this right. Blairites arguably did not pay sufficient attention to inequalities of power. They thought, okay, you know, everybody's going to cooperate here and make a more kind of social democrat progressive consensus. And they didn't really pay much attention to the way the power can kind of get constricted. And, and Tony, you know, Tony Blair, for whatever ways I would often defend him, he, he, you know, it's no question he was an elitist and he did like hanging out with kind of captains of industry <laughs> yeah. and, you know, people like, like that. So not. there were <laughs> yeah. times, there were times in number 10 where the caricature was being fulfilled, Absolutely. I would have thought. Yeah. yeah. And, and also just pick up that, I think towards, um, particularly my point in government, I was a civil servant for a long time then I became a special advisor right at the end towards the end of our time in government I do think there is a legitimate criticism that we definitely think sort of lost our bearings on that kind of stuff like I remember I was working on the equality bill at that point before it became the equality act and I remember there were moments where the sort of internal forces within the Labour Party were being more conservative than the CBI on, on things like workers' rights and some ideas, which were really quite modest at the at the end of the day. And, you know, internally, people were like, oh, my God, we, can, we can't possibly do this because business will hate it and the CBI will hate it. And then, funnily enough, some of the stuff ended up getting picked up by the Tory party. And actually, the CBI were fine about it. And I was thinking, yeah, this is... this. We are being too timid on this kind of stuff. Like, we, you know, we, we have slightly lost our way on it. So, again, and that fueled the hard left's critique and agenda against... Us. Chris, this this myth, does it rely on actually thinking there are people 
there are actual people who are sitting in a room conspiring against the ordinary working class person? Or can it be a slightly more sophisticated view, which is the system itself is structurally biased towards the interest? Is that the same myth or do you say that's a slightly more permissible idea? No, it's very much saying people or forces, because I completely agree that about the levels of inequality and the timidity of Labour towards the end of that period. And I'm not saying that there isn't, you know, massive inequality or that there isn't a 1% who has enormously more wealth than they need. It's more about the analysis of why those things exist. So to take the example of the mainstream media, you've got essentially two versions of why the the media are difficult, particularly for Labour. The first is the sort of Tony Blair feral beasts analysis, which is a picture of chaos, short-termism and easy answers and headline-grabbingness and all the rest of it. And then you've got the Jeremy Corbyn critique, which is much more rigged by the media barons. So the puppet master myth is really the latter, and it's that identification of society of everything being shaped. And in answer to the question about whether it's people, often it's not talked about as people, but the interesting thing is so much of the language implies intent. When you talk about manufacturing consent, the Noam Chomsky book, that who's manufactured the consent? Somebody must have done it. When you talk about agendas or interests, the rigged economy, who has rigged the economy, it implies that somebody is doing it. I think you can very easily say our economy is massively increases the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and things like that. And that's that is not a puppet master analysis. But once you start to say this is being done to us by shady shady forces or shady groups, then you're in into that territory. So let, let's turn to the third myth. But I, just before that, relating to a conversation we had last time we were on Polarised, one of the things that the left is saying at the moment, the Corbynites are saying at the moment, over and over and over again, is how popular Labour's policies were at the last election. But as I pointed out, William Hague's policies were more popular than Tony Blair's policies in 2001. And it's not really about policy, it's about credibility to govern. And and I think there is a link here to your argument because this assumption that it's just bad people in power doing bad things and once you put good people in power with good intent, everything will go well. I think the public know that's not what government's like and that part of Labour's problem was a sense of, well, you aren't going to get into power and do all these things. You're going to get into power and deal with reality and you don't look as though you're very good at dealing with reality. Third myth. The third myth is the golden era. And this is the idea of Labour's original socialism or some kind of founding left-wing Arcadia that we've steadily moved away from. The moment, the the kind of main language of the myth is all about neoliberalism, the post-war consensus being this kind of era of socialism in action and Labour in action. And then it's been a steady deterioration on just about every front since then. And if you look at films like Ken Loach, Spirit of 45, for example, that very much plays into that idea about the past and what the past was like. But if you look at almost almost all of the writing about Labour, it implies this kind of steady deterioration and loss over the last 70 years or something. But the interesting thing is that if you kind of wind the clock back to previous Labour governments, at those points, left was making basically the same arguments. So when Clement Attlee left, there was a massive sense that he was a kind of mealy-mouthed moderate, not fit to lace the boots of the sort of socialist forefathers. So this, it's this constant sense of this myopia that makes us go, it, there was some something real and true about Labour, which reality can never quite live up to. So betrayal, the accusation of betrayal follows Labour governments like a hangover follows a binge. I, I kind of half agree with you. I actually think that when you look at 
the post-war period, the, what the French call uh, les trente glorieuses. It does look like a pretty amazing period. This was rising living standards, it was low inequality, it was expanding welfare provision, it was a reasonably consensual politics, all at the same time as winding down the vestiges of colonialism. So you compare that with the last kind of 20 or 30 years. So I, I don't have a problem with saying actually that in many ways there were aspects of those post-war decades that we should prize because in some senses my view is that's a liberal democracy working well and neoliberalism is it becoming unbalanced but what I do agree with you about is it's ridiculous not to recognise that even though many things aren't working some things have continued to improve and that even what the left calls neoliberalism has been for example good in relation to things like I don't know gay rights or the advances that women have made in Britain and around the world and it's the left's inability to kind of recognise, well, some things haven't gone well, but other things have gone well that I think you're speaking to. Aisha, what do you think of the of the golden age myth? I'm sort of slightly conflicted on that. I think we, we all live in an era where we just... Well, everyone just loves having a moan, don't they, about how ev- terrible everything is. It's all so crap. It's all so, everything's so terrible. It's like the worst it's ever been. And everyone does have this kind of nostalgia. I got a bit, a bit of a telling off on Twitter recently because I think I tweeted something about Keir Starmer's video and loads of kind of quite centrist people were like, oh, stop being so nostalgic. It's all nostalgia's over. Everyone here. And I was thinking, no, it doesn't. Politics is nostalgia. Like Brexit was one on the back of nostalgia, for goodness sake. And we are in our hearts and souls, like quite, you know, from a creative point of view, we love a bit of nostalgia. But, you know, you're right. If you, if, you know, if I went back in time now, I'd probably have a terrible time, you know, as a woman, as a Muslim woman, as a woman of colour, all that, as a Scot, you know, all that kind of thing. But I also think we do uh, internal nostalgia in the Labour Party. Each faction is really overly romantic about what has gone before. So nobody is really prepared to call out stuff that went wrong. I have many, many dear Blairite friends who are just like kind of trapped in a time warp of like it's 19... It's like 1994 to 1997 in their head. And it's no other... That was like the best time ever in the history of like everything that ever happened. I mean, obviously it was. (laughs) But we're definitely not nostalgic. It's like, like, okay, but like everything was not perfect about it. And I think both sides are really trapped. I think that's one of the things we find very, very difficult to get out of. And the uh, the third thing I just want to say is I think this kind of everything's terrible now and the nostalgia we have drives this incredibly depressing, miserablest vision of Britain, which I think was so profound at the last general election. If your pitch to the country is everything is just terrible and your lives are just ground and steeped in misery, there has to be a way of the the sort of hope message and also seeing the sort of good that is happening in the country now. And I think the left really, really kind of suffers from that. So what does that mean for the for what's going to happen in this leadership contest? Because I suspect that Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's given 10 out of 10 in her rating for the Corbyn leadership period, will be quite happy... I'm going to defend her on that point. OK, fair enough. But she will... It's a think, silly question. Uh, I think she will probably be propagating various versions of the three myths that you've described, Chris, because they are myths that work well on, on the left, as you say. On the other side... If we go back to 2015 and we remember the centrist candidates who stood in 2015, they were not able at any point to articulate anything of any interest to anybody at all, which is part of the reason why Jeremy Corbyn won. So amongst the, you know, we've, we'll have a Corbynite position in this campaign probably, but what's going to be the thing that separates the rest of the candidates? And to what extent, Aisha, will they be talking about a return to a more mainstream 
position? So this is the this is the really, really critical question. And it's a very, very difficult balance because the three candidates, Lisa Nandy, Keir Starmer, Jess Phillips, have all got to try and sound sufficiently different. But they're kind of the same, really. They're basically defeat. I take any of them over the hard left like any day. And I think any sensible Labour person should should make that sort of calculation. But my anxiety for them is that you know, it's all very well saying, right, well, who who's going to be at the dispatch box sending out this huge message to the public that we're ready to change? I was noticing there was a great uh, thread on Twitter all about Tony Blair's brilliant, you know, tough on crime, uh, tough on the causes of crime, and who's going to be transmitting those sort of country-changing messages. That's all fine, but you've got to get to the dispatch box first. And to do that, you've got to get through a selectorate. And I know everyone's getting very excited that some people are joining for Jess Phillips, but let's get real. We're talking about probably half a million people who are pretty left-wing, who voted for Corbyn not just once but twice. They're very marred by the defeat and they, they've definitely fallen out of love with, I think, Corbyn. But they haven't yet fallen out with the love of Corbynism. Not even sure they've fallen out of love with Corbyn. No, it's true. Quite a lot of, although a lot of people I know who have been die-hard Corbynistas have said, you know, I feel really embarrassed about what has happened and I almost feel kind of ashamed about what's happened and I, I'm sick of losing. I think to have suffered four defeats in such a short space of time has focused some people's minds. But they are. I think the mistake that some of the strategists who are around some of these other candidates, I think Keir is pitching this quite sensibly and I did an interview with Jess Phillips and even she was quite measured about what she was saying about Jeremy Corbyn. She was pretty clear about what... Her, I asked her to give a mark out of 10 as a silly journalist question, but I was obliged to. She was savvy enough to say... I'm not answering that, but my views on Corbyn That's are the pretty way to do clear. It. That is the way to right? do it. <laughs> but even so, she said, look, I've made very clear what I think about the man. I want to draw a line under it. But I want to be clear that I actually agreed with him on, on a lot of the domestic policy. And she said something really interesting in the piece. She said, I hate all this left wing, right wing stuff. She's like, we're all left wing in the Labour Party. The idea that you, you join the Labour Party because you are fundamentally right wing is just nonsense. We all do quite like quite lefty policy ideas. All of them will... I suppose, tack to the left in terms of some of the policies were good, but where they can, I suppose, flex some muscle is on some of the cultural issues and the cultural issues like bullying, harassment, authoritarianism, the kind of dark night stuff. So Corbynism um, with a smiling face. I mean, so none of them are going to be my pitch, which is it's about time we abandoned this myth of socialism and talked about renewing liberal democracy. That's probably not going to be an, a vote winner. I don't know if I would pitch yourself as an advisor to any of those <laughs> I won't even say. I won't even say which candidate I prefer in case I doom them. <laughs> can, I, can I just say, uh, talk, just to talk about some of the individuals here, right? Keir Starmer has surprised me by just how quickly and effectively he's come out of the blocks. I always had him down, frankly, as a little bit of a wet blanket, but he's been the most organised and the most strategic and, and you know, he's really kind of come out fighting. Has that surprised you too? A wee bit. I got to know Keir a little bit. I had the same view as you. I was like, how, you know, this guy is so boring and, you know, Jesus. And then I did a, a thing with, I did a sort of fundraiser for him because he's, he's in my constituency and we, 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 got, we did this thing where I pretended to be Sue Lawley to suspend your disbelief and we did some sort of fantasy we did Desert Island I dressed up no no he like um, those of you under the age of 35 <laughs> will need to go on to Google at this point we did Desert Island discs where I got him to pick his like favourite tracks and tell us a bit about why each track you know married his life and he has got this really interesting 
life story. Mm. And, he's, and also, not just an interesting life story, he's actually steeped in a lot of life and work and professional and moral and political experiences that I think do give him a depth. And I think the thing that, why he's so strategic is because he's had quite a lot of big jobs before. So I think he sort of got an understanding and he's been quite savvy about, you know, he got a lot of criticism for his initial article that he did in The Guardian because it wasn't sufficiently sort of, you know, attacking Corbyn and then he went on the Today programme and everyone was very upset that he, he you know, wasn't the sort of heir to Blair. But actually it's quite a, it's, it's been quite a savvy message. Whoever needs to win this has got to do a bit of what Sadiq Khan did. He's the only kind of sense person that has won an internal election in a long time in the Labour Party. He very effectively tacked to the membership, got himself into the top job, and he's actually proved that you can have good Labour values and not be a complete lunatic at the same time and be progressive and be a credit to your party and get a lot of support from the public and, and show Labour at its best. So I think we all need to not do what our left-wing opponents would do and search for pure political Blairite purity and accept we've got to get somebody who can defeat the hard left in the party and start... By the way, this person shouldn't even be thinking about their fantasy 2024 manifesto. That is just nonsense and indulgent. The next leader of the party, the first thing they need to do is basically clean up the party, start to right some of those wrongs, kick out the cranks, kick out the racists and get rid of those people at HQ and stop the party looking like a frightening prospect. Forget trusting us in government. We just look mad and frightening right now. So whoever wins, they have to do. They have to have their equivalent of the Bournemouth moment. Absolutely. Which is the uh, Neil Kinnock speech about taxis scuttling around Liverpool. OK, look, we shouldn't spend too... We don't want to be a, a traditional kind of political punditry programme. We shouldn't spend too we're much on this. We're not one of those superficial... No, we're not. We're deeper. We're deeper. Yeah, we we're talk very, about the... If ongoing, I made it too superficial, no, 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 so no, 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 That's no, what I like to bring to no, this. No, 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 you were invited. But I, so therefore, I'm going to ask you briefly to say, what's the difference between Jess Phillips and Lisa Dandy? I mean, you know, obviously they're different people, different background, but in terms of their pitch, what's different about them? I think Lisa is going to just double down more on this north-south right. divide. Right, the road to Wigan Pier kind of thing, yeah. yeah. Towns. And I think Jess is going to be much, and, and she's going to be much more about kind of devolution. I wouldn't be surprised if actually she leans in a bit to Scotland having, let's say, a second That's referendum. Jess. No, no, Lisa. Lisa, yeah, because also she's got a very, I mean, Wigan's a really interesting local, I mean, she actually has got a council that's very good that she's yeah. very committed to, so she has got credibility now. And okay. I think Jess is going to be much more a bit kind of old school, unionist, doesn't matter about towns and metropolitan, we've got to be the, the same everywhere. I think that's I think that's kind of a, a bit of a difference. It's going to be very interesting to see how it works out. Can I just throw one idea, big idea, onto the table, which which is a bit of an existential moment for us here on RSA Polarised. If the Labour Party is about to choose a candidate who's a bit more centrist and mainstream and who might, as you said, I should take on the kind of hard left in the party, if Boris Johnson decides that he is going to try to be a one-nation conservative, if, for good or evil, Brexit is no longer going to be an issue that divides us. I mean, we've been doing RSA polarised for two years. Is it time for us to give up? Is polarisation over? Chris, what do you think? I don't think polarisation is over. Oh, thank God for at that. At all. No, no, no. I think there's plenty <laughs> plenty more um, plenty more in this. Squeeze so. a few more out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I don't think we've quite built in the, our own obsolescence into this yet. I don't think that a lot of the core problems are going to go away, either the actual polarisation of the country with the kind of, you know, big cities versus the rest of the country becoming more and more pronounced. And I actually think some of the, the cultural stuff within 
both political parties remains quite you know quite deeply divided and Boris Johnson's basically because he's won a big majority you know got the license to to paper over the cracks of those divides whereas labor very clearly doesn't but i think those those existential divides within both parties are still pretty pronounced Aisha, what do you think do you think we should be renaming this program rsa togetherness no, I don't think it's going to be kumbaya for quite a long time uh, in politics or in society. I think um, society is just really riven at the moment across lots of different issues, politics, age, geography, religion, race, you know, bigger tr- cultural issues like, you know, the transgender issue. All of these kind of things are really sort of flaring up. So I don't think there's going to be peace in our time for it. So I think you guys are safe. What a relief. Now, before we go, we end each episode with a provocation, something that's shifted the way we look at the world just a little bit. And it turns out, Ian, that you and I were both equally interested, inspired by Dominic Cummings' job advert ah, blog yeah. post. So what, what, what was your observation about that? Well, you know, I wasn't inspired by it. I, I was actually a bit disappointed in it. You're I, not applying I, yourself? I, I, maybe I'm just not. He's, he's not a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely a weirdo. I can, that, that's good. So I, I'm applying for a job. But I, I'm just not sure it was as, as grounded in reality as I hoped it would be. I actually thought his, his blogs and his kind of thinking generally might get a bit more focused. But it was the same like strange like mix of sort of half-digested grab bag of, of ideas and kind of clever-sounding thoughts that don't really add up too much. And the thing that struck me most of all was it's a really kind of old-fashioned idea, actually. It's almost like a 1960s idea to think what the country, what this government needs is just get loads of really, really, really smart people together. Get them round a table. Get these, like, quant guys around the table. They can fix everything, right? And this is what we thought in the 1960s. This is what Robert McNamara thought and we ended up in, or the US ended up in Vietnam. The answer is not actually to get because the problems of, of running a government are not like the problems of running a business or running NASA. The, the problems of running a government are people problems. They're problems of, of competing interests and entrenched kind of prejudice and all sorts of things that don't yield themselves to quantitative analysis or you know data science. The problem is not that we can't identify what the issues are. The problem is the political difficulty of solving them. And I don't think uh, maths PhDs in the government is going to help. Chris, you're a, a myth spotter. Did you feel there were any myths nestling under the assumptions in Dominic Cummings' blog? Yeah, yeah, Maybe definitely. Maybe the technocratic myth. Yeah, and I think, in a way, in answer to your question earlier about whether Dominic Cummings actually is the puppet master, I think it's almost definitive proof that he isn't because he, he still believes in it. He he believes there is some magical way of twisting the, the dial round and he's political success in some ways has been through flogging the puppet master myth better and harder and for longer than just about anyone anyone else. I think he's eventually going to get found out because he has got to this position where he is in power. He holds the levers and he's pulling them and then ultimately these, you know, he's going to realise it's Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. Thought. Like it actually, it made me think it less likely that he's going to succeed and I sort of like I shortened his lifespan in government in my mind like you know after reading that blog I thought actually he may not be around for that long because I think he's going to run smack into some walls so I should just before I ask this question what was your degree in law Right. Okay. So, and you, and, and you were, and I think you were a civil servant advisor in the Department of Trade and Industry, weren't you? So you are absolutely what he's talking about. People you are the problem. Hum, people I'm with humanity, people <laughs> with humanities degrees in serious business-oriented departments who ought to have kind of maths, economics, and high-level coding. I did take a night course in stand-up comedy. Well, yeah, like, very, very, you know, <laughs> so you know, got so, credentials. Uh, exactly. Uh, as a former civil servant, did, when you read the when you read the blog, what did you what did you make of it? I thought it was really uh, funny. 
I also I loved the fact that uh, Yuri Geller applied. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? I love that. That's brilliant. So having been a civil servant and a special advisor, I understand there can be a frustration that the civil service can, you know, move so slowly. And and you'll know this, you know, Matthew, from your sort of time. And it doesn't matter about getting the whizziest people in. I mean, I think it helps to have sort of good, good people in. Of course it does. But it's the structures and it's how... I think the best departments and the best achievements happen in government when you have a great relationship between the civil servants, the special advisors and the ministerial team. And if you have if you have good chemistry, if you're on the same page, if the ministers treat the civil servants not like they're just kind of idiots and sort of, you know, go off and be a passive provider of information and just execute every instruction if they don't listen to what the civil servants are saying because they've got to kind of execute it. And I thought there was a very good intervention from which I wrote about this week actually in the Londoner um, diary in the Evening Standard from Giles Wilkes, who had also been a civil servant. And he said, look, I admire Dominic Cummings for being a a very excellent uh, special advisor in many ways, but this idea is not going to deliver what he wants because it's not about having sparkling people which is the problem in government. It's the grind of government itself. It's the bureaucracy. It's the length of time. It's the sheer hundreds and hundreds of people you have to get to just nudge gently to get you into the right position. So I think he fundamentally misunderstands the art of getting things done, not just government, but any big organisation. It's very difficult to have revolution in a very, very big machine. I think part of what what you're describing there, Isha, is is the gap between policy, the logic of policy, which is rationalist and based on reason and data and facts, and the logic of politics, which is based much more on emotion and tactics and competition. And I think it's almost a kind of like reverse of the First World War. So many people died in the First World War because defensive technology, barbed wire and the fixed machine gun, was so much better than offensive technology. And it's a bit the reverse now which is offensive technology, the technology of politics, is much more effective, much more powerful. And the kind of the technology of, of policy, which is slow and complicated and dull and, and rejects the myths that you describe, Chris, feels like it's inadequate. So that for me, that problem, which is how do you get politics and policy to align to give good outcomes, has become worse. And as you said, Chris Dominic Cummings seems to be kind of a bit of a part of the problem of that because he's very much an exponent of brilliantly aggressive political forms. The other thing I felt when I read that blog was it felt a little bit like Steve Hilton on speed. You know, and, 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 Actually, and, I thought and, Steve and, Hilton was Steve Hilton on speed. I mean, maybe Steve Hilton always was on speed, so Steve Hilton on even more speed, but, but describe, that didn't end very well, did it? No, someone described Dominic Cummings as a, as a more successful Steve Hilton, but with shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. You're, but you're right. Totally agree. Well, thank you uh, both. It's been a brilliant conversation. I promise you, listeners, that the next Polarised, whilst it might not be as lively as today, there won't be such a consensus. We'll go out of our way, won't we, We, to find people we disagree with. (laughs) That's it for this episode of Polarised. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. We'd really appreciate it if you just took a couple of minutes to leave us a rating or a review in your podcast app. Polarised was presented by me, Ian Leslie. And by me, Matthew Taylor. The producer was Craig Templeton-Smith and we were brought to you by the RSA. 